The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'm very, very excited to start the Summer Acts series. We're looking at Puritan classics and uh, Mortification of Sin by John Owen is the first classic we're going to look at uh, this week and next week. Those of you who put books on order, we're expecting them any day. Um, the outline that I've given you tonight it will pretty much stand uh, alone, um, but you'll want to read the book for yourself. What I'd like to do is give you a little bit of background so that you know what we mean when we think of Puritans, the Puritan classics. Uh, what we're doing is we're kind of anchoring ourselves in a time of church history, and it's very helpful for us to know what that time was. Uh, you know of the Reformation that was started in the early 16th century through Martin Luther. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle in 1517 and began the Reformation. Up to that point in the West, the church had been entirely Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic Church had gotten into false doctrine and false practices. Most of the, uh, the attempts at Reformation before Luther focused on the false practices, the bad lifestyle of the priests, for example, or some of the others. But Luther zeroed in on the doctrine, and he taught the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He didn't invent it. He found it in the Bible. The Apostle Paul taught it in Romans and in many other places we see this doctrine. Little by little, the Reformation started taking over Germany, and other parts of Europe were affected greatly as well. Now, one of the parts of Europe that uh, was affected by Luther's writing was England. Now, England was under a monarch, very famous monarch at the time. Do you know what his name was? Henry VIII. That's right. What is Henry VIII known for? His wives. How many wives did he have? Six. Six wives. Not all at the same time, but he had six wives. Um, he vigorously opposed Luther's Reformation. He wrote treatises defending the uh, sacraments and was called a defender of the faith by the Roman Catholic Pope. And so they were best of buddies until uh, Henry VIII began to discern that his wife, Catherine of Aragon, had, uh, was barren and was not producing him uh, a son. Well, she did produce him one child, Mary, but not a son. And he wanted a son so that his line would be able to continue in power in England. And so as a result, he was having some serious problems, began to seek an annulment of his marriage, uh, really a divorce, and the Pope would not grant him the divorce. Now realize that politics are all over this thing, all over it. King Henry VIII had no desire to leave the Catholic Church, none at all. He was Catholic to his bone, but he wanted to divorce his wife so he could have a male heir. He wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, and so eventually, since the Pope refused to give him the divorce, he said, fine, I'll start my own church. And that's what he did. He started the Church of England with himself as, in effect, the Pope. Everything else was about the same. It was just the Catholic Church with a different Pope. And the Pope was the King of England. And so he divorced his wife. He married Anne Boleyn. And she produced him the heir that he wanted, Edward. And uh, uh, as a result, from there, also he had another daughter by another wife. 
and that was Elizabeth. Those were the three that were going to reign after Henry VIII. Now, the first that reigned in his place was Edward. Edward reigned in his place, and he was Protestant. Of course, he had to be Protestant because if he embraced the Catholic Church, then he would be an illegitimate son. You understand that? So he embraced Protestantism, but also from his heart he embraced it. He really did believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The problem was that he had some genetic uh, disorders. His father had some physical problems with his reproductive abilities and other things, and he was born weak and sickly, and he only lived until he was about 16 years old. Then he died. Well, Mary uh, took over. Now, Mary has got to be Catholic. You understand why? because her legitimacy to the throne is tied to Henry uh, not getting a divorce from her mother. And so they go right back to Catholicism, and she is given the nickname what? Bloody Mary, because she murdered a lot of Protestants. You understand how that works? So England's going back and forth. You understand? Well, Mary died of a tumor just a few years after she took the throne. So she didn't last long, and she didn't produce a child either. So who's next in line? Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth's got to be Protestant. You understand that, or else she's illegitimate. But she didn't want the struggle to continue to rip England apart. So about a year after she took the throne, they came up with the Elizabethan settlement called the Via Media, the Middle Road. And it was going to kind of compromise, kind of be a mixture church, kind of Catholic, kind of Protestant. Uh, some significant things, the Pope's authority and all that, could not continue, obviously. But some other things were going to be very much kept in place. And so you have a kind of a lukewarm, middle-of-the-road reformation. Well, there was a group of people that got weary of that and wanted a genuine reformation, a genuine change in the, Catholic, in the, uh, England Church, the Church of England. And those folks were given the insulting name Puritans. They wanted to purify the Church of of papist theology and practice. They wanted a, a reformed church. And the Puritans, uh, you know, roughly speaking, you're looking at a movement from about 1550 to 1700 generally, you know, somewhere in that range. And so we're looking at some of the classics. Now, some of those folks crossed the uh, Atlantic and set up in, in uh, the Bay Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, they were not the pilgrims that settled down in Plymouth, but up in the Boston area. They were Puritans, they were wealthy, they were educated, and so they kind of spread out and kind of took over England, or New England, sorry. And uh, as a result, kind of you've got a movement called New England Puritanism as well. And one of the authors we're looking at, Jonathan Edwards, was a descendant of that movement. So that's a kind of a general overview when you talk about Puritanism. But when I think of Puritanism, I think mostly of their doctrines, more than this history that I've given you a very brief overview of. I think of their doctrines. They understood, I think, salvation as a whole better than any other movement that there's been in church history. By salvation as a whole, I mean justification, sanctification, glorification. All of what God does in a sinner to bring that person from being lost and dead in transgressions and sins until they're glorious in heaven with him. And they did a lot of thinking on this and a lot of writing. And the work we're going to look at tonight um, by John Owen is a classic, and it really has arranged my thinking when it comes to this issue of sanctification. Now, sanctification is that process of God taking you from the moment of justification, when by faith alone you trust in Christ and all of your sins are forgiven, to uh, the fact, uh, to the moment of your death when you are taken up into his presence and you're made perfect. It's a gradual process of becoming more and more, little by little, more and more like Jesus Christ. And it's a mysterious process, isn't it? It's gradual, 
and it involves a partnership between us and the Holy Spirit. And therein lies its mystery. The Spirit works, but we also must work. And if we don't work, we won't make progress in sanctification. Owen is going to be talking about that tonight in this issue of the mortification of sin in believers. So we're going to be looking at this. Uh, Owen gave these as a series of, of addresses to basically a college chapel. And at that time, the students who listened to him would have been basically teenagers. And it's a good thing for us to keep that in mind. We think that teenagers can't really handle the solid meat of the word, but this, these addresses are as, as thick and meaty as you're going to find anywhere, and he's giving them to 16-year-olds. I think we think too little these days. We have this idea of adolescence that they can't handle this kind of thing. They handled it. They understood it. And as a matter of fact, they loved it and pressed him to publish it. That's why we have it. These were just a series of sermons and messages that he gave to these folks so that they would have power through the Spirit to put sin to death. So why don't we look at the outline? I've given you a brief background. And what I'm proposing to do is that we just kind of go through these chapters, the summaries, and try to understand the message of what Owen is giving us on the mortification uh, of sin in believers. In chapter 1, he gives us his foundational text. You can take your Bible, if you'd like, and look at it. Open up to Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. If you look at Romans 8, verse 13, you get his key text. Now, the reason I'm having you look at it right in your Bibles, rather than just on the page of the outline, is you're going to see something very important. A very important point that uh, Owen is going to make. Could somebody read Romans 8, verse 1 for me? Okay, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that encouraging to you? The idea that there is no condemnation for you if you're in Christ. Does that mean, however, that there's no labor for you to do in your soul now that you have no condemnation? You're free from anything. You can live however way you want. Is that what Paul would say? Absolutely not. But it is for those for whom this is true. There is no condemnation that he's going to give us this burden or this commitment or duty of mortification. Those who are genuinely freed from the condemning power of sin. All right, somebody read for me verse 13, Romans 8, 13. So uh, in the KJV, they're printed on your outline. It says, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Now, one of the things is you have to learn in, in terms of, of uh, theology, these little FY endings. You've got justify, you've got sanctify, you've got glorify. They're all tied to the Latin root, uh, the Latin verb, which means to make, to make, the little FY ending, to make. So justify means to make you just, to make you righteous judicially before God, to make you just in God's sight sanctify would be to make you holy, to make you sanctus, the Latin word for holy is sanct. So sanctify means to make you holy. Well, what would glorify mean then? Make it, it's pretty straightforward. To make you what? Glorious. To make you glorious. It's the action of God to make someone glorious. Is that going to happen to us? Oh, yes, it is. We are going to be glorious. We're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Isn't that exciting? That's, that's, that's a thrilling thought. Well, then, what does mortify mean? To make dead. That's right, to make something dead, to make it dead. Now, what are we going to try to make dead? 
we're going to make sin dead. And that's what he's getting at. If you are living according to the flesh, it says in the NASB, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice the subtle change in the tenses there. A sense of ongoing. If you are in an ongoing sense, living according to the flesh, you will die. But if in an ongoing sense you are in the process by the Spirit of putting to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. What does die mean? It's got to be damnation because the eternal gift of God is, or the gift of God is eternal life. So the, the, the parallelism there is death versus eternal life. So we're really talking about eternal death. We're talking about hell. So if you live according to the flesh, if you're under the dominion of the flesh, you will go to hell. That's what the verse says. If, on the other hand, you are in the process of putting to death the misdeeds of the body, you will go to heaven. I think it means more than that. No one's going to make that point, but it at least means that. Well, this is kind of important then, isn't it? I guess so. It really is. I thought all I needed to do was pray the prayer. Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently there's more to salvation than simply praying the prayer. All right? A lot more. And that's what Owen's getting at. Now, Owen begins by making some observations on the text. First, he notes that there is a duty prescribed. You are to, it says, mortify the deeds of the body. That's a duty, something you must do. It speaks of the persons to whom it is prescribed, ye in the King James. All right? You are the ones who must do it. There's a promise annexed to that duty. You will live. That's the promise. All right? The cause or means of the performance of the duty is given. The Spirit. If you through the Spirit, it says. Also, the conditionality of the whole. Uh, the duty, the means, the promise are all contained in this one word, if. There's a condition here. So that's what Owen does. Just pause right there. Note his methodology. He's chewing on this, isn't he? He's working on it. Some parts of Scripture lend themselves to this kind of analysis better than others. You wouldn't want to do this with one of the Old Testament narratives. You know, uh, that's going to read differently. You're not going to pick it apart and work over each word. But Paul's epistles really do lend themselves to this kind of careful analysis. And so Owen is just working over every word, every phrase. So the conditionality gives us a sense of the uncertainty of the event. The condition is necessary to the outcome. And also of the certainty of the connection. There's a connection between the two. If you mortify, you will live. So there's a connection between the two. The illustration he gives is saying to a sick man, if you will take a uh, such a potion, medicine, or such a remedy, you will be well. Well, what if I don't take it? Well, the implication is you will not be well. But there's a connection between a taking of the medicine and the healing that will come as a result. There is an absolutely certain connection between mortifying the deeds of the body and living. There's a connection between these two. The emphasis is given on who must mortify. Ye, or you. You must do it. Okay? People of whom it is spoken, there is no condemnation for them. There is no condemnation, and yet they are the ones who must mortify the deeds of the body. People of whom it is spoken also, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, in verse 9. People of whom it is spoken, they are quickened or made alive by the spirit of Christ, verse 10 and 11. That's an illustrious resume that you have. All of these things are said of us, and yet he's telling us we have to mortify the deeds of the body. These are the ones who must mortify the deeds of the body. Therefore, he makes a key doctrinal conclusion on this point. This will be a primary uh, kind of foundation on his whole argument. The choicest believers who are assuredly free from the condemning power of sin 
ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. I'll read it again. The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. So we have some work to do. That's what he's saying. It's not enough to say, yes, but Romans 8.1 says such and such. Oh, yes, but uh, Romans 8.13 goes beyond that, doesn't it, and tells us we must mortify the deeds of the body. We've got to do it. The essential, it is essential then to focus on the efficient cause of mortification, namely the Holy Spirit. This is going to be a major focus later, even in our evening tonight. But right from the outset, he wants you to know the efficient cause of our mortification. He says this, all other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. By Him alone is it to be wrought, and by no other power is it to be brought about. Mortification from a self-strength, carried on by ways of self-invention, unto the end of a self-righteousness, is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. Isn't that true? I mean, that's what it is. That's, that's the religions. That's, that's what they have out there. Clean yourself up. Make yourself better. Change the sin in your life. Get yourself worked together. No, that's what makes Christianity different. By the Spirit is this mortification done. All right. Well, what is mortification then? What is this duty to which we are commanded? Well, first he asks the question, what is meant by the body? We're to mortify the deeds of the body. Uh, it is the same as the flesh in one sense, the old man, the sin nature, the indwelling sin, the corrupted flesh, a seat and instrument of lust and distempered affections. It's the body. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones disagreed a little bit with Owen here. You disagree with Owen at your own risk, by the way. But um, he thought the body was just your physical body. But uh, as a result of uh, long habit and training and sin, you get habits that are kind of programmed into your body. It's a subtle difference, and I tend to agree with Lloyd-Jones. But uh, he's saying here, Owen is saying that the body is that seat of lust. It's the physical kind of resting place where the lusts of the flesh are found. That's the body. Well, well, then what is meant by the deeds of the body? Now, the word deeds denotes kind of outward actions chiefly. That's the the, um, the, the sense in the Greek word. But I think we, we do sense that it goes beyond that, doesn't it? It really starts inward. There's an internal motion or deed of the body, an inward root from which the deeds of the flesh spring. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. So every lust intends to conceive and bring forth a perfect sin, even if it ends up aborted before that end. So there's a root to this bitter fruit of sin, isn't there? And I think that's what Owen's getting at. The deeds of the body, therefore, really start within us. The root of our sin is within our hearts. It's within our true natures. Well, then what is meant by mortifying them? Well, Owen says to kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of all of his strength, vigor, and power so that he cannot act or exert. And so it is in this case. Therefore, he gives us this definition. The mortification of indwelling sin remaining in our mortal bodies, that it may not have life and power to bring forth the works or deeds of the flesh, is the constant duty of believers. That's the definition. He's, he's wanting, you're wanting to suck it of its, its life force, its energy, its ability to bring forth things in your life. Now, he's later going to be very careful to say that you will never kill sin. You need to be killing sin, but you can't kill it. 
Now, if you could kill sin, that would mean that you're teaching what? If you could say it's possible in this life to put sin finally to death so that it cannot spring back to life, what would you be teaching at that point? Perfectionism. The idea that it is, per it is possible while in the flesh now to be perfect and holy. And Owen will distance himself from that. We are not ultimately called to kill sin, but to be killing sin because sin can't be killed in this world. But it will be killed in the next. Glorification is very effective at killing sin. It'll, it'll be gone forever. Praise God. Hallelujah. Finished at last with sin. In the meantime, do you really think anybody can ever say, well, I put that one to death, never need to worry about that one again? Can you ever say that? No. If any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. You're never going to be able to say, that one is finished. I know I have a certificate from heaven on that one. I'll never do that one again. Uh, we can't. But we've got to be killing sin. And so he's going to define mortification that way, to suck it of its life strength and its ability to bring forth fruit in our lives. That's what the act of mortification is. Well, what is the promise attached to this duty? Well, life. You shall live. Well, we already said uh, that the life must be at least eternal life because we have that parallelism in Romans 6.23. Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. But I think it means more than just heaven, going to heaven. If you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will go to heaven. I think it means more than that. Uh, he says, the life promise is opposed to the death threatened in the clause foregoing. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But the word may go beyond our eternal life in heaven, uh, but include our ongoing experience of spiritual life here on earth with Christ. Thus it means you shall live. You shall have a good, vigorous, comfortable spiritual life while you are here, and you shall obtain eternal life hereafter. So there is a sense in which there's life here and now, and then there's eternal life in heaven. And I think this is accurate. There's a relationship between the two. If you are in the process of putting sin to death now, you will live now with Christ. I am the vine and you are the branches. There's a life that's going on now. But then even better, there's going to be eternal life in heaven. So the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depend on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Bottom of the page two, you can just take your pen and circle that. That is huge. The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depend on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Okay, that means if you don't mortify the deeds of the flesh, you will have no vigor and power and comfort. One could also add fruit to that list. Fruitfulness comes from this as well. Okay, turn the page. That's chapter one. You've got 13 more chapters to go. We're not going through them all tonight. But uh, chapter one. So he's saying, if you want to have a vigorous, energetic, powerful spiritual life here on earth, you must put sin to death. Now, you don't hear this on the TV preachers, do you? I mean, you just don't hear this message. You know, they promise different ways. You know, if you touch the screen where he's touching it. You know, if you get the spiritual hanky for 1995, you can get power in your spiritual life. There's kind of an instant power thing going on. Owen says, you want power, this is the way to do it. Put sin to death. Put it to death. Chapter 2. The duty of the best believers he speaks of here, and also the evil of neglecting this duty. He's going to unfold his first key principle here. The choicest believers, we've heard this before, the choicest believers who are assuredly free from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling 
power of sin. So he's zeroing in now on this phrase, the choicest believers. He gives us a supporting text, Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Well, to whom is Paul speaking? Well, in Colossians 3.4, it says that we have died and our life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So we are those who are going to appear with Christ in glory. And yet we are the ones commanded to put this sin to death. And so he's saying that this is for Christians. This is for even the most mature Christians. So he's arguing, he's going to argue from the, from the greater the lesser. If this is true, if the most mature Christians must do this, how much more should you do it? <laughs> you who are not the most mature Christian. That's the point. We must take this to ourselves and say, well, if, if this mighty man or this mighty woman of God had to do this, then how much more me? I'm just a... I'm, I'm new in Christ. I need to do this then. And so he's going to say the choicest believers. You must mortify, he says. You must make it your daily work. You must be constantly at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And this is a very famous quote. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Isn't that great? I mean, that's just one of those ones you can just write on a card. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you, John Owen. It's true. Are we in mortal combat here? Yes, we are. We're locked in mortal combat. Later in one of his other works, I think he's, maybe in this one, I'm not sure, um, he's going to talk about wrestling with a poisonous viper. And he says, basically, you cannot begin a wrestling match with a poisonous viper and not see it through its, to its conclusion with the viper dead at your feet lest you regret you began the struggle. Halfway through the wrestling match with the poisonous snake, can you say, you know, I've gone about as far in this as I'd really like to go. You know, you've had your moments and I've had mine. But I'd like to set you back down now on the path and I'm going to go that way and I'd like you to go that way. Is that what's going to happen? That viper's going to pursue you until you're dead. So you must pursue until the snake is dead. Absolutely must. You know, I've I, I thought of an analogy here, and I've, I've shared this before, but I'll, I'll share it again. I love history, and I love to study military history, World War II in particular. And I like to think about the events that led up to uh, World War II and the rise of Nazism, and specifically how the nations of Europe were so weary of war after a horrible war, World War I. They called it the war to end all wars, how wrong they were. Little did they realize that a much bigger war was soon to come. And, and it was a terrible, terrible thing. And they would do, it seems, anything to avoid war. Neville Chamberlain was in charge of England. And he tried to court Hitler. He tried to make deals with him. He tried to be his friend, to wine him and dine him, and to give concessions to him, and to build a kind of an understanding and a friendship with him. That's what he tried to do. And so he gave away part of France. He gave away all of Austria. He gave away part of the Czech, of Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland, and then Hitler just gobbled the whole nation. And then somewhere in the British government, they said, okay, we, we get it. We see what's happening. If you touch Poland, we're at war. All right? And he didn't touch Poland. He invaded Poland, and they're at war. Neville Chamberlain lost his job, obviously. 
there was behind him somebody else who understood Hitler. And that was Winston Churchill. You don't make deals with a Hitler. It's impossible because he is going to keep pressing until you are his slave. And he will not be satisfied until you are his slave. And so therefore, Churchill is going to say, we will fight him on the seas and oceans, we'll fight him on the beaches, we'll fight him on the landing strips, we'll fight him in the streets and the towns until the last British man is fighting whoever's left. That's the determination we have. We can't ever surrender, ever. Now you see the two different approaches. That's this. Which of those approaches is us and sin? It must be the second. But we live like the first, trying to appease, to make a deal, to cut a separate arrangement. Billy Sunday said the problem with sin is that we treat it like a cream puff when it's really a rattlesnake. You know, that's a homely way of saying the same thing. The fact is we must be killing sin or it's going to kill us. Now who must do this? Is there a special club of people exempt from this duty? Well, yeah, they're in heaven now. They're dead. They're gone. But those who are still alive must do it. John 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, the English translation does us no favors here because the Greek actually says this, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he cleans. It's the same Greek word uh, from which we get catharsis, that kind of that word, um, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So those who are already clean, the Father cleans. How is that? Well, that's justification and sanctification. And so if you are cleaned by the word that Christ has spoken to you, you are forgiven of all your sins and held to be guiltless in the sight of God, the Father is going to do what to you? He's going to clean you up. <laughs> and you know you need it. You feel it in your heart and your conscience. Your lifestyle testifies that this cleaning must happen. And this is sanctification. Who then must receive it? Those who have been cleaned by the word of Christ. Those who are justified. They must be cleaned up. Paul's own example is very poignant in this matter. 1 Corinthians 9.27 says, No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What does that mean, I beat my body and make it my slave? He frustrates the motions of his flesh. He does things that frustrate what the flesh wants. He's at war in one sense with himself. Now, this is the point. If this were the work and business of Paul, who was so incomparably exalted in grace, revelations, enjoyments, privileges, consolations, above the ordinary measure of believers, where may we possibly bottom an exemption from this work and duty whilst we are in this world? He's arguing from the greater less. If Paul had to do it, you have to do it. That's what he's saying. How can you get out of it? How can you say there's an exemption? I don't need to do this. Well, now he goes in, Owen goes into discussing, why is this constantly necessary? Why should be this be the case? Well, first, indwelling sin always abides while we are in the world. Therefore, it is always to be mortified. Owen refutes any possibility at this moment of perfectionism in this world against some who have taught that it is possible. Some in church history have taught a perfectionism. The eradication of sin, for example, that sin can be removed. You can put some things to death and then they are permanently dead. 
Some people in the kind of spiritual warfare camps will say it's almost like there was a demonic element, and then at one point I named and claimed something, and then from then on it was never an issue. But I don't think this is biblical. And Owen certainly didn't think it was biblical, that there is a possibility of of kind of a cauterization or something in a certain area so that from then on you never struggled with that sin ever again, period. He cites uh, Philippians 3.12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take that take hold of, of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So Paul says, I'm not perfect, and I won't be, but I'm pressing on daily to take hold of perfection in heaven. Now, page four, it being our duty to mortify, to be killing of sin whilst uh, still in us, we must be at work. He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he stri stops striking at it before the other ceases living, does but half his work. You know, I actually think that a lot of the military imagery of the Old Testament is to help us in this battle. You know, you think about, for example, um, uh, how Saul was to wipe out the Amalekites. And you're supposed to say, uh, well, that's kind of, I'm squeamish about that. I mean, I'm kind of a pacifist. You know, why would he have to kill them all, men, women, and children, and all the animals and the whole thing, wipe them all out? Well, that was part of the original taking of the promised land. As you remember, Joshua and all that, they were commanded to do this. And they just weren't doing it. And it was causing them nothing but trouble. But then he commanded, God specifically commanded Saul through Samuel, that he should go and wipe out the Amalekites. Well, he didn't do it. He killed a lot, but he kept the best cattle and sheep for himself, and he kept the king, Agag, alive. You remember that? And uh, Agag thought, well, surely the bitterness of death is past. And uh, it wasn't because he was in front of a man of God, and his name wasn't Saul. His name was Samuel. And Samuel put him to death before the Lord, it says. They say, oh, what the, what's that story in there for? Well, a lot of reasons. But I like to think of my sin that way, standing in front of me like Agag, this evil man. And you have to put it to death. And what he's saying is if you just kind of wound him at that moment, you've not obeyed God. You know, Saul lost his kingship over this. He was, it was torn from him because he did not obey. To obey is better than sacrifice, 1 Samuel 15. He had to kill him. And so I tend to think in this way that it is our duty to put sin to death completely. Now, we know it won't ever completely die in this world, but there's a ruthlessness in this matter. We're not going to spare sin at all. All right, why then do we have to keep doing it? First, because sin continues with us as long as we're in the world, so we have to keep at it. Secondly, not only does sin still live in us, but it is also acting in us. It's hardly quiet and dormant now, is it? Would you say this is kind of an active virus or just one that's laying low? Well, I would say that you're tormented by it every day. It's not a little quiet part of your life. It's actually a very big part of your life. It's a very active part of your life. It's acting. It's still laboring to bring uh, forth the deeds of the flesh. And another great quote from Owen, I love this. When sin leaves us alone, we may leave sin alone. Is sin leaving you alone? Has sin left you alone today? Did you get the day off today from sin? No, sin is a viper. Sin is coming after you every day, relentlessly. By the way, is it, is it okay to personify sin this way? Well, I think so, because Paul says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who does it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So he gives it a kind of a life of its own. It is sin living in me that does it. So, when sin leaves us alone, we may leave sin alone. 
But as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still, so ought our contrivances against it to be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even when there is least suspicion. Even when things are seeming quiet, they're not. There's a, there's a motion or movement of sin, and you have to be aggressive in working on it at all times. Galatians 5.17 says, The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. There's a constant battle going on, isn't there? Romans 7. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. That is the case, isn't it? Do you feel that? Do you sense it in your Christian life? Owen puts it this way. Who can say that he ever had anything to do with God or for God that indwelling sin had not a hand in the corrupting of what he did? Have you ever had a prayer time that was free from sin? Have you ever had a time of evangelism, reaching out with the gospel, that was free from sin? Have you ever gone to church free from sin? Have you ever sung a hymn free from the effects of sin? It's with us all the time, isn't it? It's a constant enemy. It's always active in us. If sin be subtle, watchful, strong, and always at work in the business of killing our souls, and we be slothful, negligent, foolish, in proceeding to the ruin thereof, can we expect a comfortable outcome? There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon, and it will be so whilst we live in this world. What does that mean? If you want to grow as a Christian, you've got to take ground from sin. It's not going to be yielded easily. You want to grow in your prayer life? You want to memorize scripture? You want to be more of a, of a uh, uh, worshiper, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? You want a better marriage? You want to be just in general a better Christian? Do you think that territory is going to be just ceded to you, like parts of the territory were ceded to us by Mexico? It's not going to be given for free. It's got to be taken by conquest. Sin is going to fight you every step of the way. So every single day, you're either going to foil sin or be foiled by sin. That's what he's getting at. And then he puts it this way. I will discharge from this duty anyone who can bring sin to a cessation of arms in this warfare. If it will spare him any day, even in, in any one duty, let him say to his soul, as to this duty, soul, take thy rest. In other words, the day that sin lets you alone, then you can take your rest in this matter. The only safety, therefore, is in constant warfare. Wow, you didn't walk in the door this way, did you? It's like, boy, I didn't realize. Well, that's part of my job tonight. It's part of my job to tell you there's a war on and that you are the focal point of that war and that you must fight, that if you just lay back, you will be trampled like the Nazis trampled the countries that just laid back under them. They, they just will take you over and you will be dominated. All right, we've had two reasons. Sin is always with you, so you've always got to be mortifying. Sin is not dormant or quiet or passive, but is actually active all the time. But third, sin not only was, uh, is constantly acting, but if it's let alone, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, and soul-destroying sins. 
Well, those are big words, aren't they? Great and cursed and scandalous and soul-destroying sins. Have you not seen this in the church? Haven't you seen it happen to others? It does happen. I think myself about pastors that it's happened to. I know their names. Look what it says in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So as you read that list, say, this is what my flesh wants to do to me. It's what, it's, that's the goal of my flesh in this direction. And, and this is a very insightful point that he makes here. I, I've, I've thought much about it. Sin always aims at the utmost. Do you know what I'm saying? It always, ends to, it always aims to take you to the end. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if allowed to have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin of its kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. We could add every anger would be what? Murder. That's why Jesus linked those things in the Sermon on the Mount. It's just from the start right to the finish. I think often in terms of getting on a train. You know, in Japan, we, we struggled because we didn't know the language that well. And they had these things called these bullet trains, the Shinkansen. And it would just whoosh, go fast, two or 300 miles an hour. It was amazing. Magnetic levitation just whoosh. And there was always a moment of tension, at least in my heart. Maybe Christy didn't feel this, but are we going the right direction? You know? We, we're supposed to be on the east side or the west side of the you know track. And, you know, they don't tell you. They just take your ticket and you sit down and whoosh, off you go. Am I heading to Hokkaido? And where, are we, where are we going to end up? That's a good question to ask when it comes to sin. Where am I going to end up if I get on this direction? We don't tend to think that way. We don't tend to think, where is it going to finish? When sin is finished with me, where, where am I then? All right? So... It is like the grave. Sin is like the grave that is never satisfied. And I think this is a very insightful point. And herein lies no small share of the deceitfulness of sin. Do you think that sin, as the conductor of the train, is going to say, I'd like you to get on here. Our final destination today is adultery. All right? We're going to end up there in all of the attendant miseries, the broken home, the loss of your career and of your life. We're going to end up there. So sit down and enjoy the ride. Is that what sin does? No, sin focuses totally on the moment while at the same time understanding the end result. Focus totally on the moment, and, and, and therefore it's deceitful, it's tricky, it, it conceals its final destination from you. Hebrews 3.13 says, says, Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin is deceitful, it's tricky. Like tying your shoe with one foot in there, it's very tricky to do. Uh, page 5, sin makes its progress little by little, by degrees, and thus has a hardening effect. The soul comforts itself that at least the maximum sin in that category hasn't happened yet. Insensible of the fact that the soul is much closer than ever before to committing those great scandalous soul-destroying sins. 
you're not aware of how much progress or degeneration really you've made in this. You don't realize how far you've come. And so sin is deceptive. It's tricky. It brings you in that way, in that journey. And then, also, this is one main reason why the Spirit is given to us. So he's listing reasons why we need to be at this all the time. The Spirit is given to us for this, that we might put sin to death. Uh, again, Galatians 5.17, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Do you think the Spirit ever lets up on sin? Absolutely not. The Spirit is in you to fight sin all the time. And neither one will change their nature. Sin will never be at ease with the Spirit or the Spirit with sin. We're the ones that vacillate. <laughs> we underestimate the warfare. But that's why the Spirit's given. Uh, this is very important. This is the very verse we're looking at tonight. If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Look at verse 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, I'm emphasizing, what does verse 14 tell you about what it means to be a child of God? In order to be a child of God, you've got to be led by the Spirit of God. But in context, what does that mean? If you're not led by the Spirit, you're not a child of God. What does verse 13 tell you it means to be led by the Spirit? That's right. By the Spirit, you're putting death. So that means if you're not putting sin to death by the Spirit, you are not being led by the Spirit. And if you're not being led by the Spirit, you are not a son of God. You see the, the logic? That's just how the, the verse flows. And so therefore, if you're not mortifying, you're not a child of God. That's, that's what we're talking about here. That's the logic of the verse. That's why verse 14 is connected to verse 13 by the word because. That's the connection. You say, well, you know, wait a minute. I don't see this principle of putting sin to death in my life. Well, not so fast. We'll get to that. But what I'm saying is we at least can look at the verse and understand that's what it's saying. You must be putting sin to death or you are not a Christian. You're not a child of God. Negligence in this duty contradicts the gradual transformation Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. In these people, those that are not mortifying sin, the order is reversed. Inwardly we are wasting away, outwardly renewed day by day. Sin is as the house of David, said Owen, and grace is as the house of Saul. Now, I'm reading through the Bible, and I'm right here in 2 Samuel, so I put this, this verse in here. I read it this morning. I thought it was in incredible. You remember the struggle? There was a civil war going on between Benjamin, you know, the house of the house of Benjamin, and Saul's descendants after Saul was dead in the battle, Gilboa and all that. He had some sons left, Ishbosheth, and so uh, that whole house was loyal still to the house of Saul. David, however, had been anointed as king over all of Israel, and so Judah was loyal to David, and so there was a um, a civil war going on. All right, but they fought and they fought for a long time. Look what it says. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Well, in the people who are, aren't mortifying sin, sin is growing stronger and stronger, while grace, the principle of grace, growing weaker and weaker. Well, that's a perversion of the Christian life. That is not what's meant to be. Also, the scripture says it is our duty to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God, growing in grace daily. You can see the verses. This cannot be done without a daily mortification of sin. He who does not kill sin in his way takes no steps to his journey's end. Now, do many or only few people actually do this? Well, that's kind of a question. 
When you look around the church today, do you see people who are actively putting sin to death, that this is the big issue of their lives? Now realize, whether you see it or not is not the issue. What matters is whether it's really happening. Because we already said if it's not happening, really happening, they're not Christians. But this is what Owen saw when he looked out over the Church of England at the time. There was a noise of religion and religious duties in every corner. <clears throat> That's what it literally says, corner. I don't know how it says. I know it is the scanner took that in. It's corner. Preaching in abundance. So that if you will measure the number of believers by light, gifts, and profession, the church may have cause to say, who hath borne me all these? In other words, look at all of this. All this noise of religion. But now if you will take the measure of them by this great discriminating grace of Christians, namely mortification, perhaps you will find their number is not so multiplied. Well, that was true in, in Owen's day. Do you think it's true today? Big noise of religion, lots of show, lots of stuff, lots of programs, lots of visible growth, I guess. But is there this mortification of sin? That's the question to ask. Now, what evils attend every unmortified professor Somebody claims to be, this doesn't mean a seminary professor, but somebody who claims to be a Christian. First of all, evils in himself, and secondly, evils to others. In himself, he will have only slight thoughts of sin. I like this. Uh, Owen said, the root of an unmortified course is the digestion of sin without bitterness in the heart. You can eat it and it doesn't bother you. Almost have a taste for it. But a true Christian who takes in sin finds it's bitter in the stomach and would like, would like it out, hates it. doesn't mean we don't, that we don't sin. We do sin, but it's bitterness to us. We hate it. We'd like it out. The root of an unmortified course is the digestion of sin without bitterness in the heart. When a man hath confirmed his imagination to such an apprehension of grace and mercy as to be able without bitterness to swallow and digest daily sins, that man is the, at the very brink of turning the grace of God into license, really and being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me put that in plain language. If you think ahead of time before sinning, God's grace will cover me. God is merciful. I can go ahead and live this way. You have turned the grace of God into a license for sin. And that's a very, very dangerous, dangerous way to be. You can't live that way. It's not healthy. And so you can't be thinking ahead of time. Now, if you've already committed sin and you're grieved and broken over it, and yearning for forgiveness, God is gracious and merciful, and that's the very thing that uh, He's given us confession, the blood of Christ to cleanse us from every sin, purify us from all unrighteousness. That's what we have. But if you're taking it as a coupon to go out into the world and sin as much as you like, now that's the very thing that it says we must not ever do. Take this, the grace of God and use it as permission to sin. And that's the thing that He says that happens if you're not putting sin to death. You'll start to do that. You'll start to use the grace of God as permission for sin. All right, what evils attend others when others? Well, what do you think others see when they notice that you're living an unmortified life? Other unbelievers, for example, they, it causes them to despise the gospel. They think, well, I'm as, I'm as good as him. I mean, he does this and that and the other. That's I, do, I don't even do some of those things. So why should I become a Christian? They're like this. And it deceives them. Unmortified professors or claim, claimers of Christ deceive unbelievers into thinking all they need to do is come to their level and it'll be well with them. Just live like me. And so it's a big problem. It, it actually ends up being a scandal for the church. If you have people who are living like this, unmortified, not putting sin to death, they are worldly and they affect the gospel. They affect the reputation of Christ. Chapter 2. Any questions about that so far?
take a break for a moment and ask a question. Are you understanding? Are you tracking it? Serious thing, isn't it? Very, very important. Okay, we'll keep going. Chapter 3. The work of the Spirit in mortification. The great sovereign cause of all true mortification is the Holy Spirit. The principal efficient cause of the performance of this duty is the Spirit. All other ways of mortification are in vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. Human strivings apart from the Spirit are false and they will fail. He only is sufficient for this work. All ways and means without him are as a, a thing of naught, and he is the great efficient of it. He works in us as he pleases. Now, one of the main focus in Owen's mind is Roman Catholic mortification. The Roman Catholics had a certain approach to mortification, such as the harsh treatment of the body, self-flagellation, uh, long fastings, deprivation of warmth, physical comforts, these kinds of things, beating themselves with thorns and other types of, like I said, harsh treatment of the body. Martin Luther went in for some of this and almost broke his health. A lot of these reformers were actually originally Roman Catholic monks and priests that went to great lengths somehow to, to break sin. George Whitfield did the same, almost destroyed his health. You know, you're really, really pursuing mortification by beating your body physically, literally. This is a Roman Catholic approach to mortification. Um, the greatest part of popish religion, of that which looks most like religion in their profession, consists in mistaken ways and means of mortification. This is the pretense of their rough garments. You know, the hair shirt, have you ever heard of that? You know, you're wearing something that's constantly irritating you. Do you ever get a wool sweater like for Christmas, something like that? It's itchy, you know. But some, you know, these guys would wear even worse garments without any undershirts, you know, just on purpose to annoy themselves all the time, to provoke their flesh physically. Uh, this is the pretense of their rough garments, whereby they deceive. Their vows, orders, fastings, penances are all built on this ground. Well, there are other types of human effort and mortification. Colossians 2.23 covers this. talks about such regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, verse 21. They indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What does Paul say there in Colossians 2.23? This kind of, of, of mortification, what does he say in the end about it? You're wasting your time. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It lacks any value in restraining sensual indulgence. It really doesn't. Many false religious systems make use of strict regulations and the abuse of the body to help mortify sin. Others follow this same approach in a self-styled way. Uh, quote, neither will the natural popery that is in others do it. Men are galled with the guilt of a sin that hath prevailed over them. They instantly promise to themselves in God they will do so no more. They watch over themselves and pray for a season until this heat waxes cold and the sense of the sin is worn off and so mortification is gone also and sin returns to its former domination. How many people do you think are out there making resolutions against certain aspects of sin? Promising that they'll never do it again. And as a result, mortifying the sin without the spirit. They're just on their own. Unbelievers, really, just trying to reform their lives. It happens. This is the special work of the spirit. It is given uh, through the Holy Spirit. For it is promised by God to be given us for this work. Would somebody read off the page here on page 7, Ezekiel 36? Is that not a glorious promise from the Old Covenant? I mean, that's a fantastic promise and fulfilled in the New Covenant. 
He's going to take out our heart of stone and he's going to give us a heart of flesh, but he's going to put within us his spirit to move us to obey his law. Without that, we have no hope. Well, then if it's the spirit's job put within us to move us to obey, then this is the purview of the spirit. This is his work. This is what he's given to us to do. It's his job. The spirit is given to put sin to death. Mortification is a gift given to us by Christ and all of his gifts come by the Spirit. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't mortify any sin by yourself. You can't do it. Uh, only through Christ and all of Christ's gifts come to us through the Spirit. Now, how does the Spirit mortify sin? You wondering that? How does it happen? What does he do in us? Well, first... He causes our hearts to abound in grace and in the fruits that are contrary to the flesh. And he leads us accordingly. The Spirit doesn't just say no. The Spirit says a resounding yes. And that yes so fills you that the other things are pushed out. And that's the difference between Christianity and all these other worldly systems. There's no big yes being said. But instead, just no, 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 no. Instead, what the Spirit does is fills us and produces fruit in us which is contrary to these fleshly things. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. These are the things that drive out the acts of the sinful nature. You're filled with the fruit of the Spirit and therefore you're not going to sin. I think that's huge, isn't it? It's a big yes, a big feeling, not a big no. Now, there is a no going on. That's what we're talking about. But the no is an, is an extension of the yes. It's the leading of the Spirit. Now that you're so filled, go out and put sin to death. That's what he's saying. Secondly, more to, um, it's given to us uh, by a real physical efficiency on the root and habit of sin for the weakening and destroying of it. He gets into the root in you and starts to dry it up. He starts to burn it out. He said, well, what, what is that? What does that mean, physical? Well, I don't really know, but I do know that there, are, there, there is a physical aspect to sin. That's why we call it the flesh. And he is the spirit of holiness and a fire that consumes. He's a consuming fire. Isaiah 4.4, 4, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion, he will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment, a spirit of fire. He thus makes sin distasteful to us in its very nature, at its very root itself. He is the fire which burns up the very root of lust. And then thirdly, by bringing the cross of Christ into the heart of a sinner by faith. He takes the cross of Christ right into your heart and by communion with Christ in his sufferings. Remember what Paul said? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3. Who put that yearning inside Paul? It's the Spirit that does that. The Spirit makes Paul want to join Christ in his sufferings. And what kind of suffering are we talking about? Well, at least this, the suffering of temptation. Hebrews 2, verse 17, he himself suffered when he was tempted. So Paul says, I want to join you in that. I want to be with you where you are. And I want to suffer the temptation. I don't want to yield. 
I don't. I want to say no to sin. I want to suffer Christ's sufferings and be with Him where He is so that I can be with Him. You know, and, it, and it says in Romans 8, if you don't suffer with Christ, you won't reign with Him. You won't reign with Him. So you've got to suffer with Christ. And, and what puts that yearning desire to be with Christ where He's suffering? It's the Spirit that gives you a hunger for that. It's the cross. The cross has power to dry up sin. If you meditate on the cross and you think, Jesus died for sins like that, this is what put the, the Savior to the death. This is why he shed his blood for sins just like this. How can I do this? I can't. And so the, the cross has great power to dry up sin, and the Spirit is the one who presses the cross to your conscience. All right? As with uh, one last question, then we'll be done for the night. If this is the work of the Spirit alone, how is it that we are exhorted to do it? Isn't that a question? If we've been saying that this is the Spirit's work in us, then what's our job? Well, I said at the beginning that sanctification is a partnership, isn't it? You could say, well, this is troubling to us that something that's ascribed to the Spirit we're commanded to do. No, almost every duty in the Christian life is that way, isn't it? Aren't we commanded to repent? The Spirit works repentance in us. Aren't we commanded to believe? It's the Spirit that gives faith. Aren't we commanded to pray in the Spirit? It's the Spirit that leads us in that prayer. He's our leader. We follow. But in all these duties, the Spirit and we, we work together. So it shouldn't trouble us whatsoever that there's a cooperative effort here. He also, he does not so work our mortification in us as to not keep it still an act of our obedience. We obey with it. And uh, he says here a very telling thing. We should lament for those under conviction by the law, but strangers to the Spirit. Listen to this quote. This is the saddest warfare that any poor creature can be engaged in. A soul under the power of conviction from the law is pressed to fight against sin but has no strength for the combat. They cannot but fight and they can never conquer. They are like men thrust on the sword of enemies on purpose to be slain. The law drives them on and sin beats them back. Sometimes they think indeed that they have foiled sin when they have only raised a dust that they see it not. That is, they distemper their natural affections of fear, sorrow, and anguish, which makes them believe that sin is conquered when actually it's not even touched. By that time they are cold and they must to the battle again. And the lust which they thought to have been slain appears to have had no wound. That is a very sad warfare, isn't it? To be driven by the law in this matter, but have no indwelling power of the Spirit. But then he goes beyond that and he says... But if this is the sad case of those who strive against sin without spirit, what will the outcome be for those who make no effort at all, but who delight in the lusts of the flesh and are not convicted in the least to put on this struggle? We'll stop there. Um, we're going to continue on. Those of you that ordered books, we should get them any day. Those of you who didn't, you really need to get this book and read it. Uh, we'll spend another week, God willing, next week and finish up Mortification and uh, look some more at some of the practicalities. It gets very practical on how it is that we follow the Spirit in the mortification of the flesh. Let's close with prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.